Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Morris O'Keefe, and you're very welcome to this week's podcast, The Siege of Kinsale, also known as the Battle of Kinsale. It was the ultimate battle in England's conquest of Gaelic Ireland, and it all started in October 1601. I went to Kinsale to find out more about this battle, and I met John Tullier, a local historian, and we travelled to James's Fort, and that's where it all started. We are standing here on what is now James Fort, was then Castle Park Castle. Strategically, as you can see yourself, we're looking facing north, overlooking the harbour of Kinsale. You see there, tucked away in the northwestern corner of the harbour, the town of Kinsale. And then this ridge, this, this very, very significant topographical feature, which starts at the eastern end of the moat of the harbour and works its way right around the back of the town as we're looking at it. And it was to this point approximately halfway through the siege of Kinsale, that the Lord Deputy Mountjoy, the commander of the English forces in Ireland, came from his camp across the harbour on the high ground over to this particular point. Having taken back the harbour, he then wished to proceed with the second phase of the siege, which was how best he might further invest the town where the Spaniards had come approximately a month prior to this again. Now, we're standing here, we're looking down on the middle harbour of Kinsale. And Kinsale town, back in the 16th century, would have consisted, the main thoroughfares which we travel through today and walk on, were in fact open parts of the inner harbour, through which ships sailed and so on like that. Cargoes were just landed and discharged and, and, and handled on the quaysides there. Kinsale, therefore... Is an extremely important port on the south coast of, of Ireland. And it has these two fantastic features which are very significant in terms of any fort, of any port, and that is the uh, ability to provide shelter and have deep water, which were, must have been extremely attractive to any uh, visiting or foreign ships. Um, the town itself consisted of a population of 2,000 people. And it would have been considered as one of 13 country towns in Ireland at the time, coming after such larger areas as Waterford, Limerick, Galway. Uh, and they 
in turn coming after Dublin, which had a population of just 5,000 in those days. So we can see that Kinsale would have been a significant port in those days. So the siege of Kinsale begins. Don Juan de Aquila, the Spanish commander in the town. General Mountjoy, Lord Mountjoy, Lord Deputy, on the camp hill, on the hill, overlooking the town. Mountjoy decides to begin the siege. Not in any sort of direct confrontational way, but in a very sort of a gradual method of dealing with the Spaniards. And so his uh, approach is to win back the outposts. To win back the harbour was terribly important for him, as he saw. And he was prepared to wait and leave the Spaniards, you know, starve, if you like, in the town and gradually wear them down in that way. Uh, So to kind of very gently, if you like, almost win back the various different outposts uh, was his first move. And he moved, first of all, towards Rincon Castle, where today uh, Charles Fort is located. Uh, uh, and he decided to take that as being his first project, if you like, in winning back uh, for himself. And he appointed George Carew. George was the Lord President of Munster. And George was sent over there to at least neutralise the Spaniards within Rincorn because, it is said, it was very convenient to, f- to forbid our ships. And Carew, we're told, he did score out his ground markers so that the want of light was no hindrance. In other words, that he could begin a process of bombardment of Rincorn Castle which could go on 24 hours a day, right through the, the night. Now, the defence was conducted by uh, Bartholomew Clabigo, this young Spanish ensign, who displayed, in my opinion, tremendous courage. You know, was prepared to be spurred and buried in the ruins uh, of Rincorn, and withstood and withheld there for four days of constant battering by the Lord President. Eventually, however, uh, he was, um, you know, he, he was obliged, in fact, almost by his own men, because they began to mutiny within the castle, that he decided to, that he had to surrender. And they were actually given very, very good terms by Carew. In fact, uh, brought back to Cork and shipped out of Cork back to Spain. The, of course, the, the attitude there was that if uh, Carew was shown, was seen to be showing such clemency to the people at Rincorn that maybe the other 3,000 or so Spanish soldiers in the town would, would quickly uh, succumb to his um, gesture and, and, and surrender. But that didn't happen. Having taken over uh, Rincorn, the English attention now is attracted across the harbour here to the location we're on, Castle Park. Mm-hmm. And Castle Park was, again, as you can see, dominating the harbour in the town here like this. And we are told that, for instance, ships which had arrived from England with reinforcements bombarded the castle here. The uh, the ships failed to take the castle. There was the use of a sow, for instance. Uh, you know, the, the sow was a wooden structure. 
that could be moved up to the walls and people underneath under with the protection of the sow or with the roof of the sow would work with pick and axes to try and undermine the walls and so on like that so the English have tried to apply this this machine as it was mm. called to undermine the uh, the, the the walls of the castle. However, we are told here that the engine not being big enough and they within the walls, that's the Spaniards, having a large store of great stones on the top, tumbled them down and broke it. And as a result, the English failed at that. But, however, it was won back. Uh, actually, a huge effort was put in to commemorate the the coronation of the Queen, the Queen's anniversary, the anniversary of her coronation, and eventually on the twentieth of November, uh, Castle Park Castle was won back, and so the harbour, at least the outlying posts, were made available back to the, in English hands. The harbour was in the control of the English, and it was at this point on the twentieth of November that Mountjoy came over across from his camp in Camp Hill to see and look back on the town and examine how best it might be further invested and besieged. So all the outposts have been taken back by the English and now Mount Joy's focus is on getting the town of Kinsale. So he, 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 he put guns, he immediately established guns for instance at City Point. That's the little peninsula there sticking out across the harbour very, very close to the town. He also organised ships in the harbour to constantly bombard uh, the town, you know. But some of the descriptions in, in the earlier records and so on like that, of the viciousness of the attack and, and, and what happened and so on like that, in the various different phases of it, are absolutely amazing. And, you know, where we're here, it's rather cold and objective and detached and a bit scholarly, if you like, in terms of trying to describe what happened. Um, the pain and the suffering, in, you know, in, at a time when the winter was approaching uh, and so on like that, Spaniards, for instance, far removed from their, from, from certainly far warmer climates and so on like that, uh, in, in hostile surroundings where they were apparently getting little or no support despite all the promises from the Irish and so on like that. And here, a very, a very aggressive uh, English commander, you know, constantly pounding them left, right and centre. So you had the establishment of the first battery. There was a second battery established even closer to the town. Uh, just, we're told, 250 paces from Cork Gate, a uh, relatively small part. Some of the Irish, the leading Irish uh, families, the O'Briens, the Thomans, for instance, came to the assistance of Mountjoy. The Clan Rickards, the Burks of Galway and so on, they, they also supported them. So, you know, the, the, the Spanish within the town must be beginning to feel very, very isolated. But despite that constant bombardment and so on like that, I think something that isn't often acknowledged from the, the Spanish point of view is the fact of how brave and how, how dedicated they were to their job. We're told, for instance, that after five days, sorry, uh, uh, after ten days of constant bombardment at the beginning of December, a trumpeter was sent by the English to see if the Spanish would, would surrender in the town. And the message sent back by the Spaniards was that they held the town for God and for the King of Spain. Contra tutti inimici against all enemies. So, John, what is the next stage? The next stage now is to go from Castle Park Castle to Camp Hill, the English camp.
So here we are on the site of Camp Hill. While we've been speaking an awful lot about the success of the English in terms of the siege and how well you know they they were in, investing in the town and so on like that, the English also suffered very considerably. They were in living uh, they were uh, for two month period they were in a very exposed area, and where they had got uh, beginning to get uh, had got very successfully reinforcements in from Bristol, Barnstable, uh, Cork, Dublin, and so on like that. In fact, it's estimated at one stage that their camp, the, 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 the size of the English army in the Kinsale area was something like 12,000 people, which is a huge number when you think of the area that we're in and then for them to be accommodated and so on like that. But that 12,000 may have been the case in terms of actual numbers of English bodies or people supporting the English side in Kinsale. We are also told that something like 40 per day were dying of camp diseases, dysentery and, and various different um, associated problems. Here we are in, in, in you know, this time of the year. One can assume with the cold uh, and so on like that, that many, many more of them were dying and suffering. So that when we speak about 12,000, the total complement of 12,000 can reduce that to something in the region of six effective 6,000 effective soldiers operating here. So that's, that's one side of it. The siege on Kinsale Town is now two months in and the Spaniards are getting desperate and need to get help quickly from their allies, the Irish chieftains in the north. The situation for the Spaniards was getting very, very drastic. And immediately the Spaniards arrived here in September, they immediately sent notice to their chieftains in the north that they had arrived and the chieftains were made aware very very early on that that their allies the Spaniards had eventually arrived in Kinsale. Uh, we spoke about the various different constraints that were being imposed that had been organised by Mountjoy on the Irish uh, chieftains uh, and which confined them very very much to the north but eventually pressure came on to the point that on the 24th of October Red Hugh O'Donnell decided that he would leave the north, gather as many of his uh, clan's people as he possibly could, and allies such as the McSweeney's, the O'Rourke's, the O'Doherty's, and march south to Kinsale. They left from Ballymote in County Sligo. He had already been uh, suffering to the extent that his his own base, uh, he had left Donegal. But it gathered his 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 people at um, um, at Ballymote and marched south, passing very close to Boyle, Elfin, and eventually crossing the River Shannon at Shannon Harbour. There, in Offaly, he encountered some resistance, but eventually took up camp at Templemore in County Tipperary, and there he awaited the arrival of O'Neill. Whom he, was expected, whom he expected to leave the north very soon after himself. He waited on there for three weeks. The English at Kinsale, Mountjoy, very soon discovered that the Irish O'Donnell had set out from the north and he immediately sent uh, the Lord President, George Carew, to intercept this force of O'Donnells coming from the north. O- o- Carew expected O'Donnell to come east of the river shore 
which would be the more natural, normal way to come south. So Carew marched from Kinsale and encamped just north of Cashel, close to Holy Cross Abbey, and there awaited the arrival of uh, O'Donnell. O'Donnell, however, uh, after three weeks, decided he had to make the move. And in a very bold, brave march across the Schlieffeilum mountain, uh, in the middle of winter, on a very, very frosty, where the marsh conditions had frozen over for the night, managed a very epic march of 40 miles uh, and avoided Carew's English army. From there, O'Donnell marched uh, west, uh, not directly to Cork at all, marched west around the Schlieff-Lokra mountain uh, and eventually ended up just west of Inishannon. And there he awaited the arrival of O'Neill. Now, O'Neill set out approximately a week after O'Donnell from Loch Raymer in the on the Cavan border. And there he uh, marched south through uh, Offaly Leaks uh, and on into Tipperary. And from there followed a very similar route to uh, O'Donnell's. The two groups rendezvoused eventually just west of Inishannon on the 5th of December, 1601. And there awaited, and and very, very soon, uh, were joined by 200 Spaniards who had landed at Castle Haven under General Ocampo. And there the Irish were uh, joined by this this group of of Spaniards. And from Inishannon they marched, they moved eventually to Kinsale. Camping, as we look north here from Camp Hill, we see the next uh, sort of a very light depression and then the next ridge to the north, three miles to the north of us, is Cool Carn. And there the Irish encamped on the 21st of December. So uh, on the 21st of December, 1601, the Irish consisting of O'Donnell, O'Neill and Ocampo arrived and set up camp at Coolcarn, three miles to the north of us. This was four days before the Battle of Kinsale itself. So what plan did the, did the Irish have? They had a very definite plan, uh, at least from what we can gather of the records, there was a plan. They were divided in three sections, which would have been typical of any army on the move at the time. There was the vanguard, the leading section and that was led by Richard Tyrrell Richard had joined O'Neill uh, on the way down uh, and he led the vanguard with Ocampo's 200 Spaniards the main section the main battle was headed up by Hugh O'Neill and the rear guard was taken by Red Hugh O'Donnell they set out I would imagine uh, approximately 530 in, in the mo- on the morning of the 24th of December. Uh, and th- they moved through from their camp at Kulkarn through to Ballantubber and on from Ballantubber on to Ballyregan. And at Ballyregan Cross, for one reason or another, and one doesn't know exactly what 
precisely was the cause of it. But O'Donnell's rear guard became detached from the main battle. And he took a route which took him away to the west of the march that O'Donnell and Tyrrell were taking. So at this point, I think it would be best if we left the English camp here, but travelled along this hillside a little bit further to Ard Martin. So we're moving we, over to Ard Martin now. Where we will see uh, and be in a better position to describe the remainder of the Irish advance towards Kinsale. Now over here in Ard Martin, uh, there's a dip in the valley and this is where the actual battle took place. Yes, further to the west of us here, the hill, this hill that surrounds Kinsale, on which the English camp was, was located, and on where we're standing now at Ard Martin, there the, the the land dips away to ordinary ground level uh, at Mile Water, just to the west of us, and we're looking back up north there, and we're imagining the Irish in its three sections arriving in with O'Donnell getting lost to the west and moving off to the west taking a different route altogether and we see we can imagine the uh, the Irish forces coming, the Irish army coming towards this particular point because that was the plan the intention was that the two sections O'Neill's section and O'Donnell's section would come up onto the hill they would be on roughly the same level as the English camp and the intention was that they would advance directly towards the English camp and attack it at Camp Hill the result of the whole thing in essence though was that the plan which had been worked out uh, was now changed and in my opinion, this was the turning point as far as the Battle of Kinsale was concerned. O'Neill, up to this point, had been extremely careful and cautious. He was now forced into a situation where some of his, his forces were missing for the time being. He had to change his strategy with regard to the Tyrrells section and the Spaniards joining the Spaniards in the town. And the plan as envisaged has now radically changed uh, he had no option to re- but to retire and, and to take up another position at Mile Water so let's now head off to the battle site so John we have come across now and we're at the actual battle site uh, which is known as Mill Water as O'Neill and Terrell's forces came back down off the hill here. O'Neill uh, indicated that Terrell should remain approximately at this point, as we say, on the Kinsale side of the Mona Claric River. And he remained here with his 200 uh, Spaniard, uh, Spaniards. O'Neill continued on, continued on across in this direction here crossing the Bandamona stream and on out there on the road that would take us eventually to Dundera the English had very early realised what the Irish were doing that they had 
that they were retreating off down here into the west. And Mountjoy also had his planning done. Marshal Wingfield, he put in charge of the operations in the field. George Carew, whom we have encountered on several occasions as part of the siege, he left in the camp at Camp Hill to maintain, in fact, the majority of the forces. Of the 6,000 effective, he allocated approximately 1,200, only 1,200, to deal with the, the battle. Uh, and they were put in the charge of Marshal Wingfield. Other names, big names, that came into the encounter on the English side were Henry Power, Sir Henry Power. Henry Power was put in charge of what was known as a squadron volant. There was a Henry Foliet who was engaged. We had a Captain Danver. Captain Danver was, uh, so was in charge of cavalry and so on like that. And finally, the other major uh, English personality, if you like, in on the English side was Oliver St. John. Now, let's try and to describe the situation as it was that morning. We have O'Neill fleeing, uh, moving off further to the west, looking for firmer ground. Terrell, approximately here, where we're located at the moment. O'Neill's main battle being followed very, very closely by a group of English cavalry under Captain Denver. And as they go further west here, and as O'Neill began to rise up on the higher ground across the valley there from the Balnamona stream, O'Donnell's forces, who had been lost for about two hours, suddenly appeared from the west and moving towards Kinsale here, moving, if you like, in the opposite direction to O'Neill. And fortuitously, even though you know he was lost he had the effect of driving back that English cavalry under Captain Denver which had been chasing which had been following up O'Neill that left O'Neill in a, at, a, at a, a, a stage where he could now have uh, decide where he might actually finally locate his battle and in fact what he did is he came back again but seeking firmer ground on the far side of uh, the um, uh, the Balnamona and came approximately back onto those that higher ground that we're looking at across across the way there like that the uh, and Terrell we must remember is still in, in this particular position here like this more English followed on and they followed through uh, in the uh, followed through after O'Neill, and eventually, where O'Neill faces with his back faces west, with his back in towards Kinsale, the English forces under Folio and under Henry Power are facing him on the far bank of the Balnamona stream. In the meantime, what's happened to O'Donnell? O'Donnell had the effect of driving back the English cavalry. But when his cavalry, when his horse reorganised, they turned, unfortunately, 
back on their own foot soldiers following after the cavalry. And this had a traumatic effect, a very uh, uh, unfortunate effect on the foot soldiers in that O'Donnell's horse going back onto his own foot created panic. And between one thing and another, they just scattered away off to the west and that was the end of O'Donnell's participation in, in the battle. He eventually uh, got back to Castlehaven and there joined Spanish ships and, and ended up back in, in Spain. You have O'Neill over here on, on, on that bank forming himself into a very formal type of battle arrangement which was completely out of character with what he had been used to. Uh, it was always suggested, and O'Neill himself, it uh, certainly all the indications are that to be successful, to be ultimately successful, he would have to meet in a battle in the open field. He would have to meet the uh, English in open field situation. Here, it can say, it was the first opportunity that he had of doing that. And unfortunately, whether due to the pressure that was put on him by the change of plan at Art Martin or whatever, it would appear that ultimately he was not successful. Several English charges were made toward, uh, uh, at his formation and withstood. The English retired. It happened two, three times. Uh, Foliate and uh, Power both made charges. Eventually, uh, the English, some of the English came down from the, the, the hill on the far side of Balnamona there, crossed back across Balnamona and began to attack O'Neill's forces in the flank. And the outside of the defence, uh, the very formal defence system that was there, began to break up. And as that broke up, more and more uh, of his uh, soldiers disappeared off to the west and fled off in that direction eventually becoming a route. Terrell and Ocampo realised what was happening and moved to join the main battle, moved to join O'Neill's battle. Uh, again, put up a, a, a strong resistance, particularly the Spaniards under Ocampo. They're, 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 they were noted for the, the, the great stand they made here at Mile Water. But eventually, through the sheer dent of uh, pressure from a well-organised English cavalry in particular. The uh, Otterl uh, fled and very soon the Spaniards uh, surrendered. The English were very, very effective, particularly effective cavalry. There they came, their cavalrymen were in saddles, they carried their spears at hip level, much, much more control than the Irish who on horse tended to ride without saddle, tended to use the spears in an overarm action as distinct from uh, more controlled uh, action at hip level and so on. And in various different ways, the training uh, which uh, O'Neill had tried to impose on the, the Irish uh, was shown up for its uh, uh, lack of ability to, to penetrate and, and to work in, in the formal situation. Worked very, very well. 
in the more hit and run skirmish type uh, guerrilla activity uh, which had been very very successful from 1595 but when it came to the formal battle situation of Kinsale 1601 it was seen to be uh, not adequate for the job. What happened to O'Neill after the battle? O'Neill was a, a devastated man and in the middle of winter just to reinforce the misery of his situation and crossing back over the black water in Cork and eventually the Moy as he approached home in the north many of his soldiers, many of his men were drowned in crossing that, adding to the misery and so on like that. But he was a devastated man. The old aspiration, that old idea that he had of, of a, a unified uh, uh, you know, n- n- notion of an emerging, which was emerging all throughout Europe, the notion of a, a nationhood and so on like that, uh, that was gone, totally gone. Uh, very soon after that, in 1604, just before... Uh, you know, around the time that Elizabeth died, uh, he sat with Mountjoy and they drew up the Treaty of Mellifont. At that, uh, O'Neill actually gained uh, or uh, had restored to him many of the privileges that he had as uh, Earl of Tyrone and as Chieftain of the O'Neills. Uh, but at that stage, it had gone too far. The question of language, customs, culture, ownership of land. The payback time was there for the people who had put up the money to send the forces to Ireland. The need for land for plantation and so on like that was required. And more and more pressure was put on O'Neill to the point that in 1607, when he and his family were offered berths on a vessel sailing out of Loch Swilly, uh, he uh, boarded it, along with the o- remainder of the O'Donnells and the Maguires, and sailed for Brest in France. And there, the flight of the heirs. There, the heirs, the the uh, the families which who had resisted the Tudor uh, process, the Tudor um, colonization, uh, taking over of of the country, uh, came to an end. Uh, O'Neill went from France through to Rome and was fated all the way through on his way there and eventually uh, reached Rome and died there in 1616. You've been listening to John Toulier, local historian from Kinsale. The recording was made in 2004 and a full version of this recording is available on Irish Life and Lore. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.